0: 25th, 25 February in the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, Here we're doing the Tale of Three Cities. We're going to do all the analysis of what's going on in the country and the world on the uh, first day of the second year of the beginning of the Third World War. I wanted to start with the evening host of one of the most popular shows around, Grant Stinchfield. Uh, Grant, uh, I I don't think we could have a better guy than you that could kind of compare and contrast. Yuma, Arizona, uh, East Palestine, Ohio and what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, Sir, walk us through it, the the tale of three cities. What is happening to our own country at the same time this involvement we've got, this relentless involvement we've got in the beginning of the Third World War?
1: You know, it's interesting, Steve, when you brought this up to me and I was thinking of these three cities and I said, you know, you got some real disparities, obviously, between these three cities, but you have some real similarities as well. And so while you talk about the war in Ukraine, I would say that we're in the middle of a war in Yuma, Arizona. I mean, our, our city there and all these border towns are under siege. It is an absolute invasion. And so while Zelensky faces the own invasion of his own, um, we face one as well. And then when you combine Joe Biden and Team Biden's response to that invasion, we have zero response in Yuma, Arizona, and we have an unbelievable response in Ukraine. With no checks and balances whatsoever, we have no idea where this money is going. And all the while, I believe we have politicians and pundits that believe we're still in 1987. I do not believe we're in 1987 anymore, and I don't believe we face the same threats today that we faced back then. And then, of course, to bring in uh, Palestine, well, you compare that to Ukraine. You know, Joe Biden says we're going to give you $500 million to support your pension programs? My Lord, the people... In Palestine, these poor people, they are insulted by Team Biden. Their property values have now just disintegrated before their eyes, not to mention they're afraid to bathe their babies in the water or even drink it. So three cities. It was, it was a great idea, Steve, because it's fascinating to compare and contrast all three of them.
0: When you see, you know, you see the uh, guys like Jim Jordan and they're terrific down for the Judiciary Committee, uh, Andy Biggs. Who I know you know well is one of the drivers of that. Gates is down there. But what is it about the establishment? You know, those are the good guys, the conservatives. But the Republican Party overall in McCarthy, you know, we had a couple of hearings, things were around, but they're taking breaks all the time. And you see that when Biden leaves Ukraine with the, with the uh, you know, the rom-com, uh, he's sitting there with Zelensky. Uh, immediately, six more Republican uh, House members come and talk up about it's whatever you need for however long you need it. W- what is the disconnect? Now, I didn't see a lot of Republicans before Trump really heading out to East Palestine. I mean, actually, the local congressman was on Fox the first couple of days and he was, he was, he thanked the Biden administration for what they were doing. W- where, where's the Republican Party? and actually getting down investigations, solutions. I mean, right now people are on, a, on the knife's edge about this stuff, and it doesn't seem like the, the establishment Republicans, or even the great victory we got in 2024, is changing things quickly enough, sir.
1: You know, it, it amazes me because it seems to be, to be common sense. If you're a member of Congress, you represent everyone in the country. Certainly you have your district, but you're making decisions for everyone. Why wouldn't you, if you wanna go visit and make a difference, go visit someplace else that may be not in your state? So I think it comes down to this, Steve. Who are you beholden to? Are you beholden to the people of the United States that need real leadership in Washington? or are you beholden to business and industry? So in the name of immigration, Republicans have been a big problem with this going way back. I mean, you go all the way through administration after administration with Republicans. They were chamber of commerce Republicans that actually promoted the idea of illegal immigration. And only recently do we see some real strong conservatives coming out against it. And then in the name of the war, who are you beholden to? I believe it's the military industrial complex. These people, they take campaign money from them, and they know that it is big business and big money when they're waging wars overseas like this. You take any message from President Trump, end endless wars. This Ukraine war, what was Joe Biden's comment? He says, we will be here till it ends, till as long as you need. Well, the American people are not okay with that. We're we're slowly, slowly um, losing faith that we should even be over there, much less over there for as long as it needs.
0: Janet Yellen just announced yesterday on Friday $10 billion of economic aid, a, a, a new package of $10 billion just for economic aid to pay the salaries of, of their government going forward. In addition, it was another $2 billion package, different than the $500 million of, of Biden on, on on weapons and arms. You've seen the CBO report, Grant, where there's not, we're going to add $19 trillion to the, to the national debt In the next 10 years on the plan that you and I know is already too optimistic because the the inflation numbers came out Friday and blew through whatever his expectation is. What doesn't is the ruling class just so entrenched with the corporate interests and the Wall Street interests that they don't even care anymore what people think about this. They're just going to be up in your grill every day with something.
1: Yeah, I think they're banking on the fact that most Americans are uninformed of what's going on. Clearly not the people watching War Room, not the people watching Real America's Voice, but most Americans are completely unaware. So they bank themselves on that. This nation, Steve, is totally busted. We are broke. Now, imagine if we're a business. We have revenue coming in. We got lots of revenue coming in. If you were a business and you had the amount of cash flow that we have coming into this nation, how we cannot get it under control is beyond me. But the reason we can't is because in Washington, as you well know, Steve, the power comes with the purse strings. The power comes with the money. So the more money they spend in Washington, the more power the people have that are doling it out. The American people need to realize this, that at some point it's got to give. The balloon has to burst. I mean, just look at Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I know Republicans don't want to talk about this. And they were so adamant that, oh, we're not going to do anything to Social Security. Well, I'm here to tell you we better do something. I don't want to end it. I want to save it. Now, whether that's private accounts or whatever it may be, but we've got to talk about these things. The problem is, and you would know better than me, I know it's political suicide to even talk about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, but if we don't talk about it, forget about my my son. I turned 54 today, Steve. Uh, by the time I'm 65, it's not going to be there for me
0: what uh on this insolvency are you expecting what do you anticipate because i'm hearing now you know one of the things was the debt limit the debt ceiling we're saying this is the leverage point you got to hammer this the maga is the head of the creditors committee we're essentially bankrupt uh but we we know we're kind of in receivership but i'm hearing word out of washington that the the republican house doesn't want to saddle the 24 nominee with any tough spending cuts, because I think you've got to cut $100 billion in defense spending and, a couple, and $100 billion in social spending in this, this year with this appropriations bill. W- what are you hearing? And, and do you expect this to be anything more than performative? Do you think that Republicans are really going to come in with the type of big cuts we need, the systemic cuts we need, not, not waste, fraud, fraud, and abuse? But I mean systemic cuts to big programs, including defense, that we need to start the, a down payment on getting the House in order here?
1: You know, uh, you know, you say not waste, fraud, and abuse, but the the Department of Defense is probably the biggest agency when it comes to waste fraud, and abuse, and I think you could cut literally billions of dollars out of that budget if we got to the bottom of that, and needless spending. I'd like to get back to, to, to the point where we're coming up with a budget every year, not depending on what we spent last year, but what we need this year, and and, and I want to have it proven to me every year by those agency and department heads what they need and prove it to me, not just a standard 5%, 10% increase in, in your budget. So it does come down to politics though. I'm not convinced that Republicans in Washington are going to be strong enough to stand firm. I'm a hardliner, Steve, you know me. I, I say no raising the debt ceiling. You know some Republicans say all right, no raising the debt ceiling unless we get unless we get cuts. Forget that. I- if it was me, I'm saying I'm not raising it at all. You know what We got to get I'm this a under control. With you. There's no reason to raise it. We have plenty of money. We don't need to raise this. Get spending under control.
0: What Grant's talking talking about, the prioritization of payments. There's plenty of cash coming in. There'll be about $5 trillion of cash coming in. The whole thing is we're going to pay the interest on the debt. You'll pay any face amount that comes due. So you'll take care of all the all the legal obligations that we have to, to make sure the credit rating doesn't go. Then you play Medicare and social security. And then the cash you've got to have on these discretionary programs. is like anything else. You got to see what you got money to pay for. And people are going to go crazy, but that's the hard liner. That's the only way we get it out of, out of control is that coupled with major cuts, systemic cru- cuts, program, program cuts coming in this appropriations process. Let me just pivot grant to the politics of it all before, um, before um uh trump went to east palestine uh nothing was happening there just his announcement was the forcing function for the biden regime walk me through your assessment of trump's trip
1: well i i think look i sent a note to the trump team as many of my friends did i think it was thursday of last week i said get president trump to to ohio i said and have him bring his former epa chief with him if he can um this was needed and and lo and behold look what happened uh, the federal government uh, all of a sudden starts moving and getting some aid there. You got Pete Buttigieg, though his trip was an absolute disaster. It was like Dukakis like with his stupid outfit that he was wearing. Um, but it gets action, <laughs> right? I mean, you see him. He looked like either one of the village people or dressing up for Halloween with the stupid safety vest and a helmet.
0: Uh, that that looks like a that looks like a future president, doesn't it, Grant? That's a future president. <laughs> I saw right there with yeah. with what I call it. I call him what me worry. Alfred E. What Alfred E.
1: Buttigieg, dude, that oh, Alfred man, he had I'll on was unbelievable. The, the village people at Halloween. Incredible. <laughs> did, did you see the response, though, for President Trump? I mean, I played some clips on the on the Real America's Voice show Uh, The other night of people going crazy for President Trump. So you wonder why Joe Biden is going to East Palestine. Steve, he will get booed if he goes to East Palestine. President uh, Biden will. And there's no way that he can go there now. He will get heckled. I say they would throw eggs at him, but eggs are too expensive to be throwing at him right now. Probably throw, you know, who knows what (laughs) horse manure.
0: Grant, how do you see uh, how do you see this uh, primary shaping up? I mean, President Trump, I think, laid a marker down in East Palestine that he's still the voice of MAGA. He's the leader of MAGA. Uh, I can't imagine even another candidate going out there. It would seem so phony. What's your assessment right now? We got a minute or two of where we stand in this. uh, As everybody, we're starting to kick off the 24 race.
1: Well, there was something to be said when you watched President Trump's motorcade go through there, it looked presidential again. I mean, people yelling and screaming. No one is going to be able to capture that kind of feeling because he's done it and he was the man. So I've talked to a lot of pollsters and all the pollsters agree, Stephen, I'm sure you've done this on the show as well, that the more people in this primary race running against President Trump, the better President Trump does. I've seen with when you include everybody in this race, uh, President Trump's over 50% with, with the votes, and so they'll split each other up. President Trump does really well. Head to head, it becomes a little different of a story. It's gonna to be tough, it was just Trump and DeSantis. I get it's gonna be a little tougher, but in the end, I think President Trump still wins this. What the mainstream media forgets to acknowledge is what I call flyover country. I'm broadcasting to you from Dallas, Texas. You get 30 miles outside of this city or you go 40 or 50 miles north of Houston or you go up into Oklahoma or Nebraska. This is Trump country. The media can say all they want about, oh, President Trump is losing his luster with Republicans. Give me a break. They've never been to these little towns. We saw it in Ohio. He's not losing any luster uh, with anybody except maybe the donor class that uh, that were Trump never Trumpers to begin with.
0: Uh, Grant, how did everybody get to your content? I want to know all, all, the, all your coordinates and how they get to the show.
1: All right, so uh, Stinchfield 1776 on just about every uh, social media outlet. And, of course, right here on Real America's Voice, we're going to go every night, 7 p.m. Eastern time here. And I've got a great podcast, and I, I hope everybody please subscribe to it. You can go to GrantStinchfield.com, GrantStinchfield.com to do that. Give that a subscribe. Give that a follow. But uh, as you know, Steve, be careful who you follow. I'm okay to follow. I promise you that.
0: <laughs> Grant, thanks for doing this on your birthday Happy birthday, Thanks you for doing this uh, We'll be right back in a moment thank you, Grant, buddy. thank you so much Take a short commercial break, be right back in a moment
1: We will fight We rejoice when there's no more Let's take down the War Room, here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon
0: Okay, welcome back. Uh, MyPillow.com promo code WARROOM. You get the MyPillow 2.0. This is an upgrade from the original. Buy one, get one free. You want to sleep the sleep of the just? you've got to do it on the products of MyPillow. This is what everybody in the War Room does, one of the reasons. We're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to hit it seven days a week and putting the show together oh, four hours a day and two hours on Saturday. Uh, make sure you go to MyPillow.com promo code WARROOM. You can't beat the uh you, you can't beat these products. They're absolutely incredible. And the upgrade on this pillow, people are raving about it, the My Pillow 2.0. So go there, you get buy one, get one free. Of course you get on our square, you get to see all the discounts, all the sales. The tale of three cities, as we talk about, particularly this war that's going on, I want to bring in Karen Siegman and of course our own Ben Harnwell from Rome. Karen, talk about your group. What what have you been working on for the last couple of years? And I wanted your perspective because given your connections all throughout Europe with the sovereignty movement and the patriots, and and of course, folks here, I think you're probably one of the best people to kind of give us an overview of where you think everybody stands. Walk walk through the group and how are you dialed in to these different patriot and sovereignty groups throughout the world?
2: Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. This is such an incredibly crucial topic. I mean, we are talking about World War after all. Um, American Freedom Alliance, the organization of which I am the president, has focused on preserving Western civilization, Judeo-Christian values, all those fundamental tenets that have given us the most prosperity, freedom, you know, of anywhere throughout the world, throughout history. Um, We protect against threats. Um, That set of threats at one time was, you know, a whole host of things. And now what we're focusing specifically on um, are the threats from globalists, um, from those supporting globalists and um, essentially, any organization or entity that is combating um, those fundamental precepts. And the American Freedom Alliance. We had a conference um, several years ago on the left long march through the institutions. It was an extraordinary conference. We went through sector by sector how they've infiltrated and how this is the Marxist revolution by other means. And now we're sort of reframing it. Yes, it's of course the leftist revolution, but it's globalist revolution. On on the back of all of this, so we hold conferences to that end. Uh, you mentioned um, I was just in Europe. I communicate a lot with um, other other freedom fighters, and what I found in my travels was speaking with sovereignists elsewhere, the um, the threats are exactly the same. the the dangers that they're feeling and fighting against are exactly the same. Um, Illegal or legal, depending, um, immigration, whichever way you want to look at immigration, it's by people aimed to destabilize. They don't have our values. And it's um, it's, it's a destabilizing force, um, destroying education. We're at the mercy of various powers as far as energy goes, food supply, um, energy supply, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, um, any sector that's important to us. Is under attack. I'll also name China and, of course, or the Chinese Communist Party, and I will include World Economic Forum and other globalist organizations. So the threats that we feel are 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 putting us in the greatest danger. These other sovereigntists are feeling exactly the same way. And as you know, and as I know, the reason we're all sovereigntists is because having sovereign nations is the best bulwark against these forces. So we all, you know, everywhere I went, we talk here about, oh, we're, you know, like-minded and we think that it's conservatives, MAGA conservatives, but there were a lot of people with that exact same sentiment. I was in the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and that's just, you know, the beginning. And every conversation was, we just, we felt like such kindred spirits. And by the way, Steve, um, everyone I spoke to just, Loves War Room and is is a real um, follower of Stephen K. Bannon.
0: Wow, that's good. D- define for the audience, before I get Harnwell in here, define what the, for the audience what, what is sovereignty. And when you say they're sovereigntists, we call people here populist, nationalist or, or whatever. We sometimes we use sovereignty, sovereignty for the nation. When you say this movement's a sovereigntist uh, movement, this is what they talk about in Europe. What would be the yeah. definition of that?
2: that you feel you have the right to um, government of the people, by the people, for the people, in service of your country. So against globalist forces and against forces that prefer globalist forces over the national interest of your own country. And I would say right here, right now, what we are seeing is our very own government absolutely does not have our national interest at heart. We see it at every single possible decision that they make um, from Ohio versus Ukraine, from Yumas you were talking about, versus Ukraine. There's much more dedication to globalist ideals than to American ones, and to protecting others over protecting ourselves. And it all, you know, really, it all kind of makes sense when you realize that, um, they're playing for the other side. Our government is playing for the other side. So, to me, sovereignty means you have the right to self governance without interference by globalist players.
0: Ben, let me bring you in here because, Ben, this ties right into the project we've been working on for, for many years and that the EU, this world war was started really back in 14 by the, by the powers of the of the anti-soverentist really the the EU that wanted to expand and use Ukraine as an expansionist i mean these are anti this is an anti-sovereignty body right and and yet they're really one of the instigators of the and we're not saying we're not justifying um Putin's uh invasion uh you know a year ago but this is the project we've worked on, right, the, about the, the sovereignty of these individual nations, the sovereignty of these individual people, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Hungary, uh, Poland, the Netherlands, or Great Britain with with uh, Brexit. And this gets, this EU, this gets down to really the basis of what you call our sociopathic overlords that have been driving this war, sir.
3: Yeah. Can I add to to what Karen was saying? Um which is absolutely correct what she was saying. Um I would only add to it that that um uh, that sovereignty, the the sovereign the 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 nationalist movement, um what at its most elemental, it's about a people's right to determine for itself its own destiny. Principally it's that. It's that it's that A whatever people you're talking about, whether you're talking about the Italians, the Brits, the Americans, um the Ukrainians and the Russians, the Taiwanese, the Chinese, they get, as a people, they have this right, um, which which really exists when the right of, of the individual, um, when that individual comes together and forms a society, that right to determine, to be a protagonist in one's own destiny. Um, and that is something that people really never, it, it's a quirk, It's it's empirically observable um, that people don't appreciate that right when they have it. Um, It's one of the great ironies of human history. They appreciate it and they value it when they don't have it. Um, And the more they don't have it, the more they yearn for it. And that's why revolutions happen fundamentally. It's because people have have been stripped of their dignity to decide and determine for themselves their own destiny and as it, individuals feel that societies cultures and peoples feel that it's one of the most strongest forces in, in in human history at the cultural level um and that's why i absolutely applaud what karen was saying when she started off her remarks talking about the, the judo christian um, basis of, of the west or christendom or call it what you will um And the European Union is a project which strips from its member states, literally strips from member states, that right to determine uh, their own destiny because it puts at a European level a European law which overrides national law. Let's say people in their own parliaments cannot determine the law's that will govern themselves, because the European Union has law, which overwrites that. And the European Union fundamentally is not a democratic institution. That's why Poland uh, right now um, is being fined a million euros a day, because it is insisting. And I have to say, I have to say incorrectly, uh, but I, I absolutely applaud it. Whether it, it, it's um, it's it's doomed to fail because this is what this is exactly the project that they signed up for when they signed the the European Treaties, right? Um, they say member states literally sign away their sovereignty to join and be a member of the European Union, um, but Poland is being fined a, a million euros a day because it insists that it law its law is sovereign over Europe, European law. Um, this fundamentally, Steve, this is such an important emotional uh, characteristic when it comes to, to to politics this is fundamentally the reason I would say above and beyond any other reason that the Brits voted to leave the European Union because we had this 1000 year long progression of parliamentary democracy uh, and whether you're a th- political theorist or not people in Great Britain realized at an elemental level, that there was no power that could override law that Parliament had created and that the monarch could sign. The, the the king in Parliament is the expression, or or as we used to say, the Queen in Parliament. The king the king in Parliament is sovereign in Great Britain. It's not, it's not the Constitution. It's not the people. It's the king in Parliament is sovereign. And there was no authority that could override that. And the British people had never voted. They they never said that they wanted to be a member of a supranational European. Uh, entity that could override our laws. Because we we thought, rightly or wrongly, I think rightly, that our laws were good enough by themselves.
0: Ben, hang on for one second. got Ben Harnwell in Rome, uh, Karen Siegman, who is president of AFA, American Freedom Alliance. We're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to come back in the first day of the kinetic uh, uh, experience of the Third World War next in the
1: War Room. Here's your host, Stephen K. Ban.
0: Welcome back. Uh, Karen, what, what is your is your uh, trips around Europe? What is from the Sovereignist movement? Because we're starting to see the polling show that 40 or 45 percent of the European people are saying, hey, I, I don't know about continuing on this Ukraine situation, particularly if we have to start really paying for it, not just with energy. Uh, dislocations, but also with uh, higher taxes or loss of services, etc. cetera. What was your take as you go around and talk to the sovereigntist movement in Europe?
2: Obviously, they feel—anybody in Europe feels this much more acutely than we do. It's not really theoretical so much. They are—it's in their backyard, and they are part of NATO, and, and there's a whole lot of consequences of that. Generally speaking, um, the people I talk to feel that Russia, you know, of course, this is a bad thing that happened. Russia can't be allowed to do this. On the other hand, it's not all of our responsibility to foot the bill for absolutely everything that's going on. Um, You know, if we're going to talk about self-determination and which I I love that Ben brought that up, that's crucial. Um, Ukraine has to be part of that, had to have been part of that. And the the risk feels much, much greater there. Um, but but honestly, everyone still looks to the United States to be footing the bill. And at a certain point, we can't, nor can they look to us to continue to do that. So people need to be brought to the table. Stakes need, need to be made higher. I'm a strong believer in peace through strength. We have demonstrated nothing but weakness, as has Europe. So. Um, Europe helped bring this on and needs to be part of the solution.
0: Ben, th- that's the point. Let's get to the EU and and, and this whole issue with NATO. I mean, whole, Trump's whole thing with NATO is that you guys committed in 14 to start paying two percent of your GDP. Nobody really does it. The polls get the polls get the closest. But, you know, the Germans and then when you really look at what they're spending it on, a lot of it's climate change. It's uh, it's women's health services or it's health services for the for the military. It's not really equipment, uh, interoperability, uh, you know, joint exercises, the types of things you need to use as an alliance. Do, do the Europeans, are they comfortable being essentially a, a, a national security vassal state? Because it's not an alliance. It's a protectorate. Yet you have this very aggressive EU element the non-military part that continues to push and has continued to push uh, Ukraine into membership, which the Russians have kind of said from the beginning, that's in our zone of uh, security. And it looks like you're moving you know, too much. And it looks like it would be the Chinese cutting a military deal uh, with Mexico, Ben Harnwell.
3: Yes, Steve, to answer your question, uh, we in Europe are more than happy with being a protectorate of the United States um, and you're very generous consistently um, with allowing us to indulge in vast social welfare programs in our budget, um, and and underfunding on our own defence because we know that the United States uh, will be there, and and you know, and the reason we think that is because you guys constantly tell it to us. It apart from that small blip uh, that was the, the Trump administration, um, this is this is the mood music. Um, one of the reasons one of the reasons that this is the case is because. Uh, the United States isn't really anymore uh, a revolutionary power uh, or a revolutionary republic. It's basically a military industrial complex. Uh, that is what it is primarily, with 3 million, uh, uh, 300 million Americans uh, as a taxpaying base to keep that operation going. So you have, on the one hand, this imperial militaristic uh, power that wants to spend money. To Increase what it calls its own influence around the world, and we have in in Europe uh, a vassal mentality, and we're only too happy for Americans to pay for us, so it's a perfect relationship
0: uh, w- w- what does this mean as far as you know the CNBC because one of the things you talk about the sociopathic overlords you, you've you've mentioned that they really want to feast. On not that not just the destruction part, but more importantly the rebuilding part. Walk, walk me through that.
3: Yeah, um, <laughs> this is something I have con- concentrated my my beady-eyed cynicism on, Steve, uh, right from the beginning. <laughs> having said, having said that, this war was only a pretext. Um, first was the necessary leveling of Ukraine, but you can there's only so much money you can spend. destroy a country the real grift starts on the rebuilding and you pushed out on your uh on your on your on at steve bannon on your on your getter feed your superb getter feed uh this story from uh, cnbc which is basically talking about uh the rebuilding of the reconstruction of ukraine and i have two excerpts which i'm going to read um and my um my beady eyes (laughs) were flickering like a snake uh, when I read this. Because here it goes. So here's the first excerpt. A recent estimate from the Kiev School of Economics put the total damage to Ukrainian infrastructure at $138 billion, while Zelensky has estimated that rebuilding the country could end up costing more than $1 trillion. Um, Now, I like that. you've You've got to applaud... A guy with hotspot, right? Because his own, his own school of economics <laughs> comes up with a figure <laughs> that's of 138 a Zlinski, billion. That's a Zelensky.
0: <laughs> that's a Zelensky. That,
3: that, 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 read- <laughs> that, that is the 10% ski magic, Steve. That is the 10% ski magic because he takes the input of 138 billion and he, mag- he magnifies it by six or, six or seven times. Why? Because all of this money. That the, that the, the global taxpayers were <laughs> primarily Americans, and I, I take my hat off to you because you guys are so generous uh, in the rest of the world, very generous in the rest of the world with your, with your tax dollars, right? All of this money, as, as the war room has said, the war room has said for over a year now, all of this money on reinvesting in this country is going to be spent via the presidential office, um, which basically means President Tempersensky himself and all of his oligarch friends are going to be creaming off all of ten percent, if not more, of all the money that you guys are pouring into to the rebuilding of your country of of Ukraine, uh, to the neglect of your own country. Here's another excerpt. Um, now I will close this point with that um, with this quote. Let me just pull it up here. Deputy Prime Minister Yulia. Svidvidenko told Politico during an interview that the Reconstruction should start this year despite there being no immediate end to the conflict in sight. It's going to be the biggest Reconstruction since World War II, she said. We need to start now. So here are the Ukrainians, and they've been given the green light for this by 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 the the, the the Biden regime they now want to start rebuilding a country that is still in the midst of a war that's still going to be pummeled until they get to the negotiating table and why will they do this because this is because you you guys are paying for it and the and the ukrainian oligarchs are going to be creaming off their percentage even if what they're rebuilding is going to be reduced to rubble It's ridiculous. But the Biden regime enables this.
0: Before we go back to Karen, you've seen this, and I'm going to drill back more on this in the second hour. uh, The hesitancy, the split in in Italy between Berlusconi and Salvini and even Maloney, and yet she goes to Ukraine, but she demands a photo op where she's the only head of state that's sitting there getting a stink eye across the table. Are Europeans, and particularly the sovereigns, because she's supposed to be from the far right in the sovereignty movement, are, are they starting to see that this is untenable? And you, you don't need to be an ally of Russia. You don't need to love the KGB. You don't need to love Putin. But this entire model right now is not sustainable. Eventually, the Americans are going to stop paying for this, and I believe they're going to stop paying for it immediately. And that's going to be left to the uh, nations of, of Europe, or people, is that starting to get down to the to the at least the local politician level?
3: It it is starting to enter the d- the debate, at least in Italy. And the principal reason for this is that Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who's in the uh, he's, he's the third he leads the third party, the smallest party now in the coalition government. This guy was three times prime minister himself over the last twenty or so years. He, um, whilst he was prime minister, was a strong ally of President Putin and Russia and always maintained a strong personal relationship. So he is the only politician of prime ministerial rank in the European Union today who is saying explicitly and openly and unambiguously that Italy – should not be supporting Zelensky because Zelensky started this war through his constant bomb bombing of the ethnic Russians in the Donbass uh from 2014 onwards. He's the only person saying this. Now, I've done the research on this. The New York Times was writing about Ukraine this is pre-Zelensky, but about the the, the um the, the the Ukraine's bombardment of the Donbass in as early as 2014 and 2015, this has all been memory hold. All of it, right? All of the trigger points, all of the constant um, poking the bear has all been memory hold. The only person who is talking about this and not backing down, he's digging in. In fact, he—he he, he, is pure Trump. He, he, when he's attacked, he's doubling down. The only person who's doing this is Silvio Berlusconi, because um, he's what 86. He doesn't care now. Um, he doesn't I, d- I don't think he has ambitions to be Prime Minister again. Um, so, you know, he's a, he's a billionaire. And he can say what he thinks. and and he is doing. And that is moving the needle in Italy. Why? Because Giorgia Maloney is is Prime Minister today. Um, she's on about thirty percent in in the polls huge sway of the public opinion positive opinion behind her but the people who voted for this coalition are by and large the people who are least happy because they're 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 sovereigntists. they're least happy to see this country's material condition uh hit the sort of um hit the skids because we're supporting a country Around which is not a military ally, as you correctly say, um, around which our actual ally, Italy's actual uh, ally, would more likely, more authentically be considered to be Russia rather than Ukraine. Um, so, this is the influence of one person, Berlusconi, who is moving the needle, but he's coming under wow. a lot of attack in the Italian press for this.
0: Just hang on, Ben, you're going to hang with me through the uh, end of the hour. Karen, I know you got a bounce. Uh, AFA, I think you're going to have a spring conference. Can you give our audience where they go to find out more about it, where they found out about your conference and about all the great work you're doing?
2: We are. Thank you. Um, tremendous conference entitled, in fact, World War III, the early years. And here we are. Um, we're going to be covering the globalists, of course, um, Chinese Communist Party, of course, the infiltration of the United States by both of those entities. Um, and you can find more information at AmericanFreedomAlliance.org. We're on Getter, American Freedom Alliance. Um, find us there. Um, you can find our videos on YouTube at American Freedom Alliance and more recently on, um, on Rumble, of course, where, where they're not booting us off for speaking the truth. And as far as what's going on in Ukraine, I just want to say one of the fault lines, of course, is globalist versus nationalist, but the other fault line is, um, is of course, um, the ne- no, no more endless wars and those who are absolutely all in for endless wars. And that's
0: perfect. We're gonna. Karen's going to join us at CPAC, so you're going to see her live. She's going to be in yeah. studio with us, so check out Karen when, next week. Karen, thank you very much. Ben, hang on. Frank Gaffney joins us next. Getter has arrived. The new social media taking on big tech, protecting free speech, and canceling cancel culture. Join the marketplace of ideas. The platform for independent thought has arrived. Superior technology. No more selling your personal data. No more censorship. No more cancel culture. Enough. Getter has arrived.
1: It's time to say what you want, the way you want. Download now.
0: Okay, welcome back. Uh, We're going to be at CPAC. Go to cpac.org slash worm. It's still not too late to get your tickets. 47 bucks off. We want everybody there. It's going to be incredible Karen's going to join us. Of course, Frank Gaffney is going to be the centerpiece of so much we're doing. The Committee on the Present Danger. Frank, uh, give me your. You've been at this a long time. We call this the the World War Three, the early years of the kinetic part of it. Walk us in, pull the camera back and, and walk us through right now geopolitically where the United States of America is, sir.
4: Well, let me just set the stage. Uh, You know, we've been talking a lot about endless wars. Uh, We've had a succession of them, I would argue, going back to, well, Korea, perhaps uh, certainly Vietnam, and then uh, more recently, Iraq and Afghanistan. These have been wars that we've fought, Steve, as you know, against non peer adversaries who did not have the capability to defeat us decisively on the battlefield, and we did not have the will to defeat them. Decisively, and they just dragged on in various ways, to varying degrees, at terrible expense to lives of our personnel and national treasure. What we're in now, and it is the opening stages, I believe, of World War III, is a totally different deal. And whether it is a an adversary that is a peer in a number of respects, actually, probably more capable than we with respect to nuclear weapons, namely Russia, which is now embroiled in a hot war that it started, I believe, in Ukraine, and uh, is every sign of continuing for the next few years, if it can. And then there's, of course, the looming war, second front, if you will, with China. Certainly a pure adversary, one that arguably is superior in a number of important respects, both nuclear and in terms of hypersonic missiles, in terms of uh, ships, combat vessels now uh, at sea, and more coming, um, aircraft and and a host of uh, exotic technologies. These are nations that I believe are intent on destroying our country. And that's a very different thing. It's not going to be a voluntary conflict. It's not going to be an open-ended one, I fear. It may well be one in which we are decisively defeated, which means two things. One, we have got to be about the business of preparing ourselves, getting this country on a war footing, much as China is at the moment. Uh, We're not doing that. It's one of the things we're recommending in the indictment is an urgent priority. The other thing is, um, I think that we've got to be clear that we must do everything possible to deter that second front from opening up. If we continue doing what we're doing now, I think it almost certainly invites Chinese aggression, and uh, not just against Taiwan, by the way. I think it will be against, um, well, other allies of ours in the region, and probably against our assets and personnel, and maybe even our territory. There and perhaps closer to home. This is this is a different and, and deal for, than anything we faced uh, since World yeah, War II, yeah, and we're in it. I,
0: I, I want to get I want to get into all of this. Um, I want to go back in your time in the Pentagon because I, I think context is very important here for the American people. You just said something I have not heard on any show that we run the risk of being decisively defeated, not like a Vietnam where it's a political decision to to pull out, not like Afghanistan or Iraq where where we the reason we're beaten militarily is we just didn't have the will to see it through. So we'd make some political decision over time and, and, and pull out. You're saying decisively defeated. What I want to do is go back and remind people, when you were in the Pentagon and when I was in the 7th Fleet, the Pacific Fleet, and then went back to the Pentagon, our concept there was two and a half wars. There was a concept through the whole Cold War that we would be prepared industrial base, militarily, that we could fight. You could take on Russia. The Soviet Union at the time, you could take on the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong in China, and you could still have enough if you needed to fight a Vietnam or somewhere in the Middle East. Walk us through that. We've got three minutes from May. Walk us through what the two-and-a-half war concept was and how far off of that we are today.
4: Well, what it was at the end of the day, Steve, was it was a philosophy of deterrence. If we had that kind of capability, nobody was going to mess with us. Now, the Soviets, you know, threatened it uh, frequently. The Chinese actually engaged in some hostilities against us in Vietnam and Korea. But basically, it worked. It was peace through strength, most especially practiced by my old boss, the man you've done so much to um, memorialize, uh, Ronald Reagan. But we've long since abandoned that posture. We abandoned it initially to two wars. And then two major contingencies, and then one contingency and one war, and then now, if we're lucky, uh, one contingency, probably, by which we mean something short of a full-on war with the kinds of adversaries I've just described. Where this is true of our military deployed now around the world, uh, worn out, and now beset by our own government in unimaginable ways. You talked earlier, Steve, about cutting the defense budget. Uh, You know, I understand the idea of budgetary discipline, and yes, there's probably waste and fraud and abuse in the Pentagon as there is in every aspect of government, but this is not a time, in my personal opinion, my professional judgment, to be signaling to our enemies that we're cutting our military. And even if we could, um, that's probably being done right now by the effects of inflation, as you talked about. We haven't budgeted for inflation. So the military is being hollowed out. It's being purged. It's being driven uh, to you know ideological extremes with the wokest nonsense, with the vaccine passports and uh, mandates and so on. This is a dangerous situation because those adversaries think they can take us down decisively. I fear they're right. I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope they're wrong about that. But we're playing with fire if we persist in these policies. And finally, I'd just say the defense industrial base that, as you say, supported that two-and-a-half war strategy is long gone. It's time we get long back gone. to putting it back in place if we wish to deter needless wars, endless okay. and otherwise.
0: For Frank. Frank, hang on. We're gonna take a 90-second break. I've got Frank Gaffney. Frank's gonna be the centerpiece of a lot what we're doing at CPAC. We're gonna talk about can America be decisively defeated on the battleground and on the battlefield? And what does Frank Gaffney mean about we need to get on war footing today? Frank Gaffney, I got Ben Harnwell a lot in the second hour. Stick around.
1: We rejoice when there's no more. Let's take down the CC